And as we join together, you can uh, turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2 this morning. Now, if you need a Bible, uh, raise your hand. We have some Bibles to hand out in case you uh, don't have one with you. Hopefully at home you have your Bibles handy. So we are continuing our study in the the book of Acts. So we are here in chapter 2. We are going to read down this morning to verse 21. We'll sort of be stopping in the middle of Peter's sermon, um, but it's just how much we're going to be able to um, uh, handle this morning. So Acts chapter 2. Uh, The scriptures will be up on the screen if you need them, otherwise you can follow along in your Bible. And the Word of God reads as follows, Now when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven, as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues, tongues as of fire, And one sat upon each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men, from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. Then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, look, Are not all these who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? Parthenians and Medes and Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontius and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, We hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. So they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, whatever could this mean? Others, mocking, said, they are full of new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. For these are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day, but this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out of my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and on my maid servants I will pour out of my spirit excuse me, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they shall prophesy. I will show wonders in heaven above, and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness, and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and notable day of the Lord, and it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Lord, thank you for the reading of your word, and may you be our teacher. May you honor your word as it has fallen upon our hearts, and may our hearts be fertile soil this morning to receive your word, that we might understand and grow. And Lord, may we during this time not only understand and grow, may we surrender more fully 
to you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we entered into the book of Acts last week. And as we get into chapter 2 today, I would like to draw your attention back to chapter 1 briefly to remind you what Jesus had said to his disciples as they were waiting upon him uh, there during those uh, 40 days or so that he appeared to them uh, between the Passover and between the time known as Pentecost. In chapter 1, he said in verse 4 that they were to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And then they had, of course, asked him a question about when he would restore the kingdom to Israel. And in verse 7, he said, It is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So what we are about to witness and experience this morning in Acts chapter 2 is the fulfillment of this promise that they would be baptized with the Holy Spirit, number one. And number two, in verse 8, he said, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. That preposition upon means literally upon. You see, uh, in the Gospel of John, Jesus had said, the Spirit is with you and the Spirit will be in you. But then later he said, the Spirit will come upon you, speaking to these disciples. And so we know more completely now from the New Testament, especially from the book of Ephesians as well as other epistles, that when we become believers in Jesus Christ, the Spirit of God comes to dwell within us. And that's the with us. The with us is he comes to be with us, and then he says he would come to be in us. I'm sorry, excuse me, the indwelling is when he comes to be in us. The with us is that he's been really with us the whole time, right? And when Even before we come to know Christ, the Spirit of God is working in our lives to draw us to himself. When others are being used by God to witness to those who do not yet know the Lord, the Spirit of God is with them, working in their hearts and in their minds to bring them to Christ. And then coming to Christ, the Spirit comes in to every believer. So every believer is given the Holy Spirit. There are no believers who don't have the Spirit. You see, to be a believer, to be a Christian, by definition, it says that you must have the Spirit of God dwelling within you. But then there is this experience that's being described to us here in the book of Acts, where Jesus said his disciples would receive the Spirit in a different way. And some people have termed this many things a second blessing or something like that. Uh, However you would like to phrase it, it says here that the Spirit would come upon them and give them power to be his witnesses. So here in chapter 2, verse 1, it says, Now when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. So a few things to note about Pentecost. In the book of Leviticus chapter 23, 
You can turn there if you like, but I'm just going to sort of walk us through that. In Leviticus 23, verse 4, we have the feast of the Passover that is outlined for us in verses 4 through 8. And there the Lord lays out what the feast of the Passover is and how it should be practiced. And of course, the Lord had given the feast of the the Passover to the Israelites while they were still in captivity in Egypt. So he gives the time and sort of the date of when the Passover would take place. And then if you are in Leviticus 23 in verse 9, you see the feast of first fruits. And it says there, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the children of Israel and say to them, when you come into the land, which I give you and reap its harvest, then you shall bring a sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest. And he shall wave the sheaf before the Lord to be accepted on your behalf on the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it, which would be, of course, on a Sunday. And you shall offer on that day when you wave the sheaf a male lamb of the first year without blemish as a burnt offering to the Lord. Its grain offering shall be two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil, an offering made by fire to the Lord for a sweet aroma, and its drink offering shall be of wine one-fourth of a hen. You shall neither eat bread nor parched grain nor fresh grain until the same day that you have brought an offering to your God. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations and all your dwellings. So during that time of the feast of the Passover, uh, right after the feast of the Passover would have been the feast of uh, first fruits. The feast of first fruits would have been in our reckoning of the events of the gospels that Sunday, resurrection Sunday, when Jesus was resurrected from the dead. Do you see how that lines up the feast of first fruits and Jesus became a type of fulfillment of that in that the first fruits were being offered to the Lord. Now, in the feast of the first fruits, we are at the time of the beginning of the harvest, sometime in, in April. And so during that time, they would go before the field was ready to be uh, harvested, they would go to the corner and they would cut a little sheaf off. And there was sort of a definition around how much that would be. But just think of it like a bundle of the wheat or of the grain. And as they brought it, as I read there in, in Leviticus 23, you saw they brought it to the priest. And then the priest would take it and he would wave it. And so people have wondered, what's that like? You know, is it kind of, you know, kind of waving it in the air like this? And, and often the, the priest would just take the grain and sort of hold it like this in, in his hands and then wave it like this as an offering to the Lord, sort of like he was offering it, you know, like he's giving it to someone. And so that, would, that was the practice. So here we are on the Feast of uh, uh, First Fruits and what's happening on that day. Jesus has been resurrected. He has been offered as the first fruits. And and Paul later says in 1 Corinthians 15 and in other places that Jesus became the first fruits of the resurrection for us. And so now, after the feast of first fruits, we're told, uh, if you go down a little bit further in Leviticus 23, 15 through 22, and we're not going to read all that, but it counts down in verse 16, count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath, then you shall offer a new grain offering to the Lord. So we're now seven weeks later uh, after the feast of first fruits, and we've come to this time called the feast of Pentecost. So seven weeks, seven times seven is 49 on the 50th day, which would have been again, another Sunday 
it would be the time called the Pentecost, and it's called the Feast of Weeks. And as you read through there, it talks about uh, what should happen during the Feast of Pentecost. But on that day, uh, verse uh, 21, uh, excuse me, verse 20, uh, the priest shall wave them with the bread of first fruits as a wave offering before the Lord with the two lambs, and they shall be holy to the Lord for the priest. And you shall proclaim on the same day that it is a holy convocation to you. You shall do no customary work on it. It shall be a statute forever in all your dwellings throughout your generations. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not wholly reap the corners of your field when you reap, nor shall you gather any gleaning from your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and for the stranger. I am the Lord your God. So here contained in this feast, the Feast of Pentecost, the Feast of Weeks, would be the time of the harvest. This would be probably in June, right? If you counted seven weeks from April, it would put you sometime in June, maybe early June. And so as this harvest was taking place, they were again to bring an offering to the priest, and the priest would wave it again before the Lord, and there would be a sacrifice again of lambs before God, but also in that feast, a provision was made so that everyone was ministered to, right? He said, leave some in your field so that others could glean, you know, the poor and the stranger. And you might remember that this would be reflected to us in the time of the book of Ruth, as uh, Boaz was uh, ordering that there would be some extra grain left behind for her. So even there, we have sort of a picture of what God was doing during that time. Now, so that is the, the Feast of Weeks and the, and the Feast of First Fruits. Sometime before the coming of Christ, this feast, the Feast of Pentecost, the Feast of Weeks, began to be regarded as the anniversary of the giving of the law on Mount Sinai. At that time, according to a rabbinical interpretation of Exodus chapter 20, all 70 nations on earth heard the voice of God in their own languages. So when God gave the law... Uh, God was giving the law not just to his, his people, but the law was given that all might hear of the goodness of God. So we have here also a picture in the Feast of Pentecost, which again comes on a Sunday, uh, just as Resurrection uh, Day came on a Sunday, that we have the first day of the week being held up by God. So people wonder, how do we end up with the tradition of the church meeting on a Sunday or on the first day of the week? It was both because the Lord was resurrected on the first day of the week and the Spirit of God was given to the church on the first day of the week. Now we're told here in chapter 2, verse 1, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. So they were being obedient. Jesus had said to tarry until Jerusalem, to, in Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. And so when Jesus had been ministering to them during that 40 days or so since his resurrection till the time he was taken up, there was a period of about seven days where they were waiting upon the Lord. And they didn't know, of course, when it was going to come. They didn't know it was going to come on the day of Pentecost. They just knew that they were told by Jesus to wait until he sent the Spirit to them. I submit to you that they also did not know what was going to happen. They didn't know how it was going to happen. They didn't know what it would be like when the Spirit would be given to them. 
But we are told that as they were waiting there in verse 1, that they were all with one accord. Now let me just read the definition to you of what it means to be in one accord. It means to be of one mind, one passion, unanimous, and altogether. You see, the Spirit of God and waiting for the Spirit of God in this case brought unity to the church. And it seems painfully obvious to me that in the day in which we live, and not just with coronavirus, certainly that's accentuated our differences, but we are at a time today in the life of the church, and by the church I mean capital C, where there is very little unity, where this definition of being in one accord, of one mind, of one passion, being unanimous and all together is rarely found. It's rarely found even within a a local church body. And I say that to say this, that unity comes from the Lord. And so we need to bring ourselves to the Lord. And as it were, like those sheaves that are waved before the Lord, that we would lay down our lives and our, our views on things. And those things can be whatever. I'm not particularly referring to coronavirus and all of that this morning. I'm just saying unity in the in the church unity in the body because you see without unity god can't effectively work remember jesus was uh, said once or twice during his ministry that he could do no miracles there because of their unbelief and where there is a lack of one accord where there is a lack of unity there is unbelief But in this case, thankfully, they were unified. They were of one accord. And verse 2 says, And suddenly, in that moment, there came a sound from heaven. So this is a sound, not an actual thing that happened. It says, as of a rushing mighty wind. In other words, the wind didn't blow through. It said it was a sound. And it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. The word for the Spirit of God in the Scriptures is the word that means breath or wind, both in the Greek and in the Hebrew. This sound of a fast, mighty wind would make um, any of these men and women who knew the Scriptures, the Hebrew Scriptures, think of the presence of the Holy Spirit. In Genesis chapter 1, it is the Spirit of God as the breath or the wind of God blowing over the waters of the newly created earth. Remember that in the book of Genesis? In Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, it is the Spirit of God as the breath or the wind of God blowing life into man. Remember it says God breathed upon Adam and he breathed upon Eve. And in Ezekiel chapter 37, we have that incredible passage about the valley of dry bones. And it was the Spirit of God as the breath or the wind of God moving over the dry bones of Israel, giving them life and bringing them strength. And so here on the day of Pentecost with this picture, this vision of the wind, the sound of a mighty rushing wind coming into the house where they were sitting, it's entirely consistent with how God has moved in time past. And in verse 3 it says, In that moment, there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. So as the Spirit was being poured out on the church in that day, in that moment, 
There was something divine and unique that happened. There was something, and we're told, like um, a, a tongue of fire. And so we don't know what that means. Many have tried to artistically represent that over the years, and we can only go by what Luke wrote as he was, had interviewed people and they had tried to describe from those who were there what they saw and experienced on that day. What exactly happened and how those tongues of fire appeared is less important than the fact that it happened. And they had that common experience. And the Lord gave them a sign through that, that he was coming upon them. He gave them the sign of the sound of the mighty rushing wind. And then they could each see something, some kind of a tongue of fire over the head of each of those people who were present on that day. And remember that there were about 120 people on that day waiting upon the Lord. And so each one of those 120 people received this gifting of the Spirit. Verse 4, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And they began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So again, to give you a definition, the word filled as the Spirit came upon them. As they were baptized with the Spirit, it says they were filled with the Spirit. The word filled means to supply, to be made full, to be wholly imbued. I'll come back to that. To be affected, to be influenced with or by something, namely, in this case, the Holy Spirit. Now, that word imbue is not a term we use every day, is it? How many of you use that term on a regular basis, imbue? How many of you know what it means? It means to dip or to drench or to steep or to tinge. And so when Jesus said the Holy Spirit would come upon them and he said, wait until you have been imbued with power from on high, he's describing this experience once as described as baptism, now being described as being filled. And you get the picture. Being baptized is immersed or dipped or to be made wet. And being filled and being imbued means to be made full. It means to be, again, to dip, to drench, to steep. And so the idea is that when the Spirit came upon them, they would be immersed in the Spirit in a new way. You see, this goes beyond the indwelling of the Spirit to be given power to be his witnesses. One person said it this way, the baptism of the Spirit means that I belong to his body. The fullness of the Spirit means that my body belongs to him. And the baptism is final. The fullness is repeated as we trust God for new power to witness. I like how that person said it. And there were dwelling in Jerusalem, verse 5, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. It's probably a, a good point to stop and tell you this about the Feast of Pentecost. The Feast of the Passover in April was not a very favorable time for travel. It was sort of the end of the season where storms would come and that kind of thing. And so uh, although the Passover was one of the three mandatory feasts that all Jewish males should attend, it was probably a lesser attended feast than the Feast of Pentecost. In the June time frame, during the time of Pentecost, 
Many have regarded and reported this to be the, the largest or the most highly attended feast in the history of Jerusalem. So during these days, the time of the Feast of Pentecost, there would have been the, the normal millions of people. At least two million people, many estimate, would have been in the city during this time. And I don't know if you've ever had a chance to visit Jerusalem. It's not that big of a city. So to imagine the normal uh, couple of hundred thousand people who live there, all of a sudden swelling up to a million or two million people during the time of a feast, it is literally wall-to-wall people. It's what we might describe today in our vernacular as being packed in like a can of sardines. Just wall-to-wall people. Another thing to consider is where were they during this time? The, the, the room or the place where they are described as meeting, these 120, many felt were probably an upper room similar to, to possibly the upper room where Jesus held the last Passover meal with his disciples, but it's unlikely that a room that size in someone's house would have held 120 people. Many have surmised or or theorized that this would have been a room somewhere near the temple because the temple precinct did have meeting rooms and gathering places. And so uh, that might describe uh, the reason why many people heard it because they were in and around the temple area, the temple courts. And perhaps they were meeting in one of those rooms at any rate. It says, when the sound occurred, the multitude came together. So this sound that was given on that day as of a mighty rushing wind was not just heard in that room by those 120 people. This was a supernatural phenomenon. And all of those people in that general area of wherever they were meeting heard that sound. And it caused them to come together and say, what was this? And notice it says, and they were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. So those 120 people had the Spirit of God come upon them, and wherever they were and however they were gathered, the people who were gathered there in the city began to hear this strange thing as people were just crying out in their own native tongue. But it says they were all amazed in verse 7 and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all of these who speak Galileans? Now the Galileans had their own unique dialect. That that was regarded, the area of Galilee, in that day as sort of a a low-class, blue-collar, working sort of town. And they had a distinct dialect that, if we again, if we were to put it into our context today being people who live in New England, we often think that sometimes when we hear someone from the deep south speak in a certain way, maybe that they sound uneducated. And we have these ideas, right? Well, the same thing existed with respect to Galilee. And when they heard a person from Galilee speaking, because they tended to slur things together and mix their contractions and all those kinds of things, it was painfully obvious to the educated Jews that these people were not from Jerusalem and that they weren't educated, but that they were those people from up north in this particular situation. And they said, wait a minute, we hear this thing coming out of their mouths and they're speaking to us in our dialect, in our language. And how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? Now, some have felt by observation, if you remember back to Genesis chapter 11, when the 
Tower of Babel happened. Remember what happened that moment? The people were trying to build a tower to God and God looked down and saw what they were doing in that moment and he didn't like it and he saw them rising up in their pride and then God did what? He confused their languages and he made it such that they could no longer communicate with one another and they sort of got divided into people groups. In Genesis chapter 10, we have what's called the table of nations as God began to divide the people and sort of send them out into different regions. But through the incident at the Tower of Babel, uh, he confused their languages and gave them language so that they could not communicate with one another. Now in this day, Because of the Roman conquering of the world, and we'll see a map in just a moment that I'll show you, Rome had, of course, conquered much of the world in that region, and so they had sort of forced the common language to be Greek. And so almost everybody spoke Greek, but they also had their own dialect, their own language where they grew up. But they're all in Jerusalem on this day, the day of Pentecost. And so on this day, as God brings the gift of the Spirit upon them, as they begin to speak, and in a moment we'll understand what they were speaking, God is essentially reversing Babel through the work of the Holy Spirit. He's making it such that under divine influence of the person and work of the Spirit, they were being given power to be his witnesses. Isn't that what it said in Acts 1.8? And a part of that was that they could speak something in a language unknown to the speaker, but known to the hearer. And it was a witness. And didn't Paul say in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14, that tongues was for a witness to those who didn't believe? So in verse 9, here's all the people who were there. It says Parthenians and Medes and Elamites and those dwelling in Mesopotamia. Can you go ahead and put that slide up while I read this, please? Great. I realize you may not be able to fully see that, but uh, just bear with me for a moment. Parthenians and Medes and Elamites and those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontius and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, We hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. I know you can't see all this, but I'm going to point it out over here to you this morning, and I hope this doesn't freak out on me because I'm getting too close to the speaker. Uh, There's a red box up there, and that's the, the box in the lower left, but... If you can see, and you probably can't from where you're sitting, all of the names uh, in yellow. So in that red box, you can see Asia, Pontius, Cappadocia, Phrygia, Pamphylia. That area there is sort of what's modern-day Turkey. And then as you move around, it goes down to Mesopotamia, Parthenia, Mede, uh, Media, Elam. All of that over there is Iran and Iraq in modern day. Down south there, Arabia, that's all part of Syria. And then you move over to Egypt, Libya, Cyrenica. Uh, that area is North Africa. And then you can see the close-up there. And again, I apologize, you can't see it all, but that's the size of the map to sort of get you the picture. So you can see these people groups were from all over, right? So now let's just zoom out for a minute and think about what God might be doing here. People are in the city of Jerusalem, the largest feast of the year on the day of Pentecost. And he pours out his spirit. 
And there are all these people groups, some 14 or 15 or 16 people groups. I counted 16. Some said there were 15. And as they are there, they are hearing the Spirit of God move in and through the lives of people. And notice what it said there in verse 11. We hear them speaking in our own tongues. What? The wonderful works of God. Now, I want you to make a note, either mentally or if you're taking notes this morning, as we go through the book of Acts and as the the apostles travel and they walk into situations where there are are people who believe in Christ, but they they had the Spirit of God, but they had never received the fullness of the Spirit. When the Spirit comes upon them, you're going to find that this happens, that they speak the wonderful works of God. So whatever they are saying, it is somehow declaring the praises and the excellencies of God himself. So that tells us a very important thing about the gift of tongues, doesn't it? Now, there are some who say that the book of Acts is really a book of history, and it doesn't lay down doctrine. But I believe it is laying down a foundation for the doctrine of the New Testament. Because if you think about it today, there are uh, many who say that this gift of tongues, and this is part of what divides the church and causes people to be turned on about this, this issue of the gift or the expression of the gift of tongues, uh, is, is you know, saying all these things and then somebody has to hear it and interpret it for you and then it's some special coded message to you, the hearer. And I honestly don't believe that's the case. I believe it's as it's spelled out for us here, and again, we'll see this repeated as we go through the book of Acts, that when people speak in tongues, it's for the purpose of witnessing to the unbeliever, and it's declaring the wonderful works of the praises of God. Now, I want you to think about this in that moment as this is happening and as these people are speaking and they don't even know what they're doing. The Spirit of God is moving in their life and He's using their body, if you will, as a megaphone to speak the excellencies and the wonderful works of God. And all these people are hearing from all these people groups from all over. How could God, in one moment, in one hour, take all of these people groups from all over the the known world at that time and get their attention? Because this got their attention, right? And what we're about to see is now Peter stands up and he speaks in Greek, this, this incredible sermon because the Spirit of God has now come upon him to prophesy and to preach. Here's what came to me as I was reading through this. God can accomplish more in one day, yes, even in one hour, than you and I can accomplish in a lifetime. And I hope that emphasizes for us the importance of the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. You see, it's not just that he's with us, And not just that he's in us, but we need him to come upon us individually as believers today. We need to know this fullness of the Spirit so that we might be witnesses. Does that mean that everyone who receives the fullness of the Spirit speaks in tongues? Absolutely not. Because later Paul will tell us in in the book of 1 Corinthians chapters 12 and 14 that not everyone has that particular gift. But he does say that all of us get some gift. And I believe as, as you read through that and study it, that we will all get not only one gift, but probably multiple gifts. 
but the gifts of the Spirit, because the Spirit was given by Jesus to bring glory and honor to himself, the gifts of the Spirit will always point back to Jesus. Because Jesus said he pointed to the Father, and he said the Spirit pointed to him. And if that's the case, then everything the Spirit does, or that we attribute to the work of the Spirit, must point back to Jesus. It must be a witness of Jesus. Why? Because the Spirit was given to give us power to be his witnesses. And I think with that understanding, and I personally believe that's the proper understanding, that should free us up from the fear of what might happen if, quote, I were baptized by the Spirit. I don't think it's going to be anything weird. I don't think it's going to be anything bizarre. You're not going to be sitting in a trance with smoke around you and lights flashing and, you know, no, this is something that God uses for his glory. And it's not something we should be afraid of because others have, in a sense, tainted or perverted that gift or they've misrepresented, in my opinion, the work of the Spirit. Going back a few years... There were manifestations, as they were called, of the Spirit, where people were, quote, barking in the Spirit, laughing in the Spirit, and doing these crazy things. And I ask you, was any of that pointing to Jesus? I don't think it was. It just made a mockery of God. And in many cases, it served to shine the light on those who were, quote, filled in that particular way. But in the way that the Spirit came upon the church on the day of Pentecost and the way I see the Spirit working as we go through the book of Acts and then Paul begins to write those epistles about how the Spirit moved and worked in the lives of believers, he has to declutter and and, and, and deconstruct all the madness and build it back up and say, no, here's what the Spirit of God does. So they were all amazed. They were all perplexed, saying to one another, whatever could this mean? As they heard it, they knew that these people didn't know the language. They were speaking the wonderful works of God, and they heard it. And others were saying, you know, something's going on. What does it mean? Others were mocking, saying, well, they must be drinking. And they said it's only the third hour of the day, about 9 a.m. And then we find in verse 14 that Peter begins to stand up with the 11. And this is where Peter begins to explain things to the people. Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to the men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. For these are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. So before we go on and talk about what happened and what Peter said, I want to point out something to you about our friend Peter here. We've just studied the Gospel of Matthew, and if you know anything about the life of Peter, there, there are things we know about him during his time with Jesus. We know that he was impetuous and he was impulsive. Some have often described that Peter was the kind of person who would open foot and insert mouth, that Peter was the kind of person who would speak first and then think later. And we know this about Peter. We know that he was a zealous person. We know that he had some quality to lead people. People looked up to him. People followed him. He had a strong character, a strong disposition. But here we are seeing now the picture of a man who has come under the influence of the Holy Spirit. 
We are seeing a person who has changed. We are seeing an uneducated person who speaks with a guttural Galilean accent being transformed by the work of the Spirit so that he can be a witness. Notice Peter is not standing up saying, now folks, let me just disqualify everything I'm about to say by saying, who am I? I'm not educated. I don't know how to do this. And don't we do these things often when we feel like the Lord might be speaking to us or giving us a gift and we say, I could never do that, whatever we're pointing to. And I would submit to you that when we do that, we are quenching and grieving the Spirit And we are acting in unbelief because if the God that we know and love and serve, who we say and we worship uh, as the person who redeemed our lives, is not capable of giving me a gift and using it for his glory if I would just take a step of faith and let him use me for his glory. God can do more in one day, in one hour, in one minute that you and I can do in a lifetime. Peter, in giving this remarkable sermon, had no preparation, he didn't study, to prepare for that moment. It was spontaneously given. Listen to this. Peter didn't wake up that morning knowing he would preach uh, to, to the thousands and that thousands would embrace Jesus in response to his message. Yet we could say that this was a well-prepared sermon. Listen to this. It was prepared by Peter's prior life with God and his relationship with Jesus. It flowed spontaneously out of that life and out of a mind that thought and believed deeply. You see, Peter, while he may not have specifically gone through his Bible study and prepared his notes, he was prepared because of the life he had been living before God. You see, before there's a public, there's a private isn't there? That's the way it works in our lives. And Peter had spent time with Jesus for three years, three and a half years. And during that time, Jesus had ministered to him. Jesus had spoken to him. Jesus, of course, as he always did, had ministered the scriptures to them. Peter, probably being a Galilean and being an educated man, had probably at some point during that time spent time uh, reading the scriptures, or at least maybe going to more to synagogue more regularly than he ever had before, because now listen to what comes out of his mouth in verse 17. And if you notice in your Bible, some Bibles don't do it this way, but you'll see it like in all capitalizations, or you'll see it sort of set off separately in a paragraph. What's happening here as Peter begins to speak and to preach is he is quoting scripture. How many of you have said, well, I can't memorize, I have trouble with that, I can't even remember the grocery list when I go to the grocery store? Peter stands up under the influence of the Holy Spirit and listen to what he says here, right? He says, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel explaining this phenomenon that they are seeing and witnessing. Verse 17, and it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and on my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they shall prophesy. Now, what had just been happening? These 120 people in that upper room, both men and women of all ages, received the spirit of God in the same manner. 
They were from different backgrounds, from different places, from different ethnicities. And this thing that's happening, Peter is now explaining by looking back to the prophet Joel and saying all of these things that I just read in, in verse 17 and 18 are happening. He says, this is what's happening. God is fulfilling his word. You can take down that slide now. Thank you. He says, it shall come to pass that I will pour out my spirit. So this is the prophet Joel's way of explaining what Jesus said would be the time when the promise of the Father would come, when the baptism of the Spirit would come and change the lives of people. And he says, your daughters shall prophesy. There were no doubt ladies speaking under the influence of the Spirit that day. And people were hearing them give the excellencies of God in their own language. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and on my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit. You see, this is being spoken in Jerusalem to a highly educated Jewish crowd. To people who thought God only spoke and worked in a certain way. That you had to be educated and of a particular ilk to receive the Spirit of God or to understand the things of God. And now he's just blowing that all away by saying, oh yeah, this is what Joel said, right? And he's quoting the scriptures to them on all people. And notice in verse 19 now, he begins to take sort of a a forward-looking view of what's going to happen later. I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and the awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So Peter, as he's speaking, as he's preaching this incredible word of God, quoting this scripture from the prophet Joel, he's giving them a near and a far issue with the scriptures. He's saying what Joel spoke many years ago is now coming to pass today. That's the explanation of what you see and hear. But he's also saying, but there's also something yet coming that's even more magnificent. And it's what God is going to do at the end of the age during the time of the tribulation. And it shall come to pass, verse 21, that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Anybody. Doesn't the Lord want people to be saved more than I do? More than you do? If we would be available to God, do you think he would be willing to work and to move in and through our lives? If we were willing to lay down our fear of what might happen, if we yield to the Spirit of God, what could God do? And I submit to you that he could do what he did on the day of Pentecost and even more if we were willing to do such a thing. I'd like to close this morning by reading to you from a book that will will become the, the featured book next month. It's called They Found the Secret. And it's looking at the lives of different people, many of whom you may have heard of or know, just telling the story not only of their conversion, but how the Spirit of God came upon them. And this is actually from chapter 11 in that book, from the story of D.L. Moody, Dwight L. Moody. Some of you may know of him. You may have at least heard of him. He, in that day, was a shoe salesman. And God came upon him. And here's what happened. Permit me to read. It's about a page. But I think you'll understand why I'm reading this as you listen 
with respect to this issue of the coming of the Spirit upon the church on this day. So reading from They Found the Secret, chapter 11, D.L. Moody. In Chicago, this is talking about him traveling around now, speaking and preaching. In Chicago, as he traveled, there were two godly women, Miss Sarah A. Cook and her friend Mrs. Hawkshurst, who attended Moody's meetings in Farwell Hall, and on whose hearts there came a great burden that this precious man of God be filled with the Spirit. On more occasions than one, Mr. Moody made reference to them as he did at a meeting in Glasgow. And he says, I can myself go back almost 12 years and remember two holy women who used to come to my meetings. It was delightful to see them there for when I began to preach, I could tell by the expression on their faces that they were praying for me. At the close of the Sabbath evening services, they would say to me, we have been praying for you. I said, why don't you pray for the people? And they answered and said, you need power. I need power, I said to myself. Why, I thought I had power. I had a large Sabbath school and the largest congregation in Chicago. There were some conversions at that time, and I was, in a sense, satisfied. But right along, these two godly women kept praying for me. And their earnest talk about the anointing for special service set me thinking. I asked them to come and talk with me, and we got down on our knees. They poured out their hearts that I might receive the anointing of the Holy Ghost. And there came a greater hunger in my soul. I knew not what it was, and I began to cry out as never before. The hunger increased. I really felt that I did not want to live any longer if I could not have this power for service. I kept on crying all the time that God would fill me with his spirit. Then came the great Chicago fire. On the evening of that memorable night in 1871, when one-third of the city was laid in ashes and thousands were left homeless, Moody had preached in Farwell Hall. With the institutions which he had founded in ruins, Moody went east to appeal for funds, but he said, My heart was not in the work of begging. I could not appeal. I was crying all the time that God would fill me with his spirit. Well, one day in the city of New York, and oh, what a day. I cannot describe it. I seldom refer to it. It is almost too sacred an experience to name. Paul had an experience of which he didn't speak for 14 years. I can only say that God revealed himself to me, and I had such an experience of his love that I had to ask him to stay his hand. I went to preaching again. Listen, the sermons were not different. I did not present any new truths, and yet hundreds were converted. I would not now be placed back where I was before that blessed experience if you should give me all the world. It would be as the small dust of the balance. Listen, listen. The sermons were not different, but the servant was. The truths were not new, but now they were pungent and penetrating. A few had been converted before. Now converts came by the hundreds. Before, it had been the earnest energy and tireless drive of the man. Now, it was the, the, the dynamic of the Holy Spirit. 
That's what happened to D.L. Moody. I want that. Do you want that? Lord, as we uh, close this morning, we long for what we've read here in the book of Acts in our own lives. We long for what we've just heard of Mr. Moody's life. And Lord, we don't seek an experience. We seek you. And Lord, we want our lives to be different. I think all of us listening today, probably if we're honest before you can say, we don't think our lives are everything that you want them to be. And Lord, perhaps the missing element in our lives is this power that you wanted to give to your apostles on that day and and to your church as a whole. That we might have power to be your witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts. And that we might be open to the things that you might want to do in and through our lives. And Lord, I, I think that you would want us to stop making excuses for why we can't or why we won't. But rather, Lord, that we might just be open to what you want to do. And so we ask you, Lord, would you come upon us this morning, wherever we are, wherever we're sitting, wherever we're listening, and Lord, would you fill us with your Holy Spirit? And may we learn, Lord, this issue of dying to self and putting aside our own desires and the way we want things to be and just let you move. And Lord, however you have gifted us, whether it is with some fantastical gift like the gift of tongues or a gift of prophecy or a word of knowledge or a word of wisdom or whether it's a gift of being uh, serving in an administrative role, a gift of helps, whatever the, the gift or the gifts might be, Lord, that we would just consecrate them and use them for your glory. We know that as you came upon your church that day, upon your disciples, you came with that symbol of wind and fire. And fire, of course, speaks to us of purification, Lord, maybe there's stuff in our lives that need to be burned away by that holy flame. Lord, maybe there's a consecration that's missing in our own attitude toward you that we need to consecrate this morning. And so, Lord, we pray that you would move in and through our lives. We pray that we would be open to all that you might want to say and do. Lord, your word tells us that if we belong to you, Paul wrote it very clearly, you are not your own, you are bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. And so, Lord, this morning, we open up ourselves to you. And Lord, for any listening who may have never believed in you, Jesus, or given their life to you, we ask this, this might be a moment of reckoning for them where they would come and just say, Lord, I, I want that. I want that forgiveness. I want to know you. I want to know you as those early disciples knew you. I want to know you as Mr. Moody knew you. So Lord, let this be the moment of their salvation, of their birth into your presence.
And so, Lord, this morning we humble ourselves before you.